The reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 9, verse 38, to chapter 10, verse 12. And if you're following on the Bibles on your chairs, it can be found on page 821. No? I'm going to surprise you, Judy. It's actually to verse 10, verse 38. So just keep going till you, get to, till you get to there. 31. Very well. Yeah. Thank you. <sighs> Starting at verse 9, chapter 38. Um, chapter 9, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds again gathered around him. And, as was his custom, he again taught them. Some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, 
he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me, do not stop them, for it is to such that these such as these, that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we've left everything behind and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Judy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is our teacher. We pray that you will help us to be good listeners and good learners this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Judy. That was a really long passage. But actually, the unit is even longer because there's a natural unit in Mark from the second time Jesus says he's going to die to the third time he says he's going to die. And in the middle is this section where everyone has to listen 
really well to Jesus. And the bit just before what Judy read is pretty important. So just listen to this bit. The disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus says this. He sat down, called the 12, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child in his arms and put it among them, and he said, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. And those two things, being first, being the last will be first and the first will be last, are like the bookends of this big section. Who will be last? Who will be the servant of all? And in serving, will they find Jesus? Well, it's a pretty complicated passage. So there are situations in our lives that are complicated. What about the voluntary assisted dying legislation? What about children changing their genders? What about abortion? What about the plebiscite on gay marriage last year? But what about easier decisions like buying a new car? buying new technology, things like, hmm, shall we go on holidays? Where shall we go? How do we decide on issues in life? Because people might disagree with us. How do we relate to them? Or people may not have the same options we do. How do we relate to them? What might cause someone to stumble because of what we say and do? How do we live out this purity Jesus asks of us that demands some sort of spiritual surgery where you cut off an arm or gouge out an eye so that we may not hinder ourselves or someone else to find God's grace? Well, it's a long passage, but the message that it starts and ends with, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all, kind of flows through the whole passage And I think it can be put into one word. Service. But I think we learn something. We learn actually three things about service from this passage. We learn that the coordinates of serving are wider than we think. The consequences of serving are wider than we think. And the cost of serving is more impossible than we think. Well, we need to do a little bit of background. Denise actually preached in the 8.30 service, but we missed it at the 10.30 service, a whole slab before this. And basically, she showed us that Peter discovered, finally identified that Jesus was this Messiah, this promised one who was coming. But straight away, Jesus said, well, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die. And... The reason was because there was this other, more shadowy Old Testament figure, the suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah. They were thought to be two different people. But in Jesus, they actually are the one person, the servant king. And Jesus has come to establish his kingdom. Then after that, there was the transfiguration when Jesus is revealed in his glory And God the Father says, this is my beloved son. 
listen, listen to him. Now, you might remember that God gave the commandments to Moses on a mountain. But on this other mountain of transfiguration, the law is reinterpreted. It's re-spoken. And the words are, listen to him. Because God now points to Jesus, who fully kept the Old Testament law. And he, his is the one voice we must listen to. So we've got this passage between these two foretellings of Jesus' death and resurrection. But we're also told that Jesus wants to avoid the public eye. He says this. They passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. That was unusual. Always the crowds came. But Jesus avoided the crowds because he was teaching his disciples. He was teaching. This is an intensive teaching block. And he was doing it because he was soon to die and usher in this kingdom. And they had to be able to understand it. And even when he teaches the crowds, he teaches the disciples even more deeply. But it was a very different kingdom to what they thought. And it's actually not that easy for us either. So, the first, so firstly, the coordinates of serving are wider than we think. So the disciples were obsessing about status, arguing over who was the greatest. And then they stop someone who was actually casting out demons in Jesus' name just because he wasn't one of them. And then they're telling the parents of children who come to be blessed to go away. It's like they are controlling the kingdom. And Jesus has to stop this. And he takes this child into his arms and he says, this, this no-status, helpless child is what you are to serve. And when you do that, you're welcoming me. But not only me, you're welcoming God, the Father. There's so much for us to think about as churches, even in this. But actually, it gets even more uncomfortable. Because the word for child and the word for servant are the same in Aramaic, which was the language Jesus would have probably spoken. Well, commentators say that Jesus is saying, Jesus is elevating the helpless ones. But how is he actually elevating them? He's doing it by lowering himself. This is the first axis of the coordinates of serving Jesus. The high and the low. Jesus puts himself lowest, last. That's what he's going to do. And that's what he wants them to do. But think about this. Can you see what's happening here? Think about the weariness of serving. It's drudgery, it's humiliation, there's a yuck factor to serving. But all of a sudden, it's honorable. It's honorable because we're serving Jesus when we serve the powerless, the helpless, and the no status. Well, I said in churches, there's a lot to think about here. How do we do this? How do we say, not my way? I prefer a quiet church, but you have children. I prefer this kind of music or that kind of worship style. But let's go with what you find best. 
This is welcoming Jesus. Oops. But how we serve, the tasks we serve, this isn't just simply up to us either. This is a kind of another axis on the, the breadth of service. A person may be given tremendous power to cast out demons in Jesus' name, even though they don't yet know Jesus, but they soon will. That's at one end. But the other end is just basic human kindness, giving someone a glass of water because they bear Jesus' name. They may not even be a believer. It doesn't say they are. But they too will be rewarded. God can give power to complete newcomers to his kingdom. And he can reward the most basic human kindness. But in reality, this is actually quite hard to take. When I first started in ministry 21 years ago, Bishop John Harrower was my boss. He, he was, wasn't a bishop then. But he really helped me. He said that when you serve in any capacity, whether it's high or low, you fulfill an office. You could be the minister, or you could be the children's worker, or a music leader, or a Bible study leader. You could be anything. And in fact, in, the, in your secular work, you could be the CEO, or you could be the cleaner. The office will survive well after you've left it. Your task is to serve the office faithfully in Jesus' name, for Jesus, to Jesus. And when you leave it, you will be no less his servant, but ready to serve in some other way, cleaning the church windows or mowing the lawns. But the coordinates of service are even wider than that. They point inwards. They point inwards to our most intimate relationships. The Pharisees asked this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But this reveals their hard-heartedness towards the law of Moses. A husband could actually divorce his wife just because she didn't please him. And divorce meant to loose her, to let her go, to make alone his wife just in order to replace her with someone else. That was allowed. But Jesus goes all the way back to creation and he says, God said a husband and wife were no longer two but one and they should not be separated. He says whoever divorces or looses his wife and takes another commits adultery against her. He betrays her. He places his desires above hers. He does not serve her. Because from the beginning, marriage was so that we would not be alone. But now Mark doesn't let women off the hook either. Because in, the, in, the, in those times, Roman women were allowed to divorce their husbands. But the point that is being made here is that marriage is for mutual service, mutual together service. But I think it's important to note that not all marriages work. And nothing in this story is about leaving or fleeing an abusive relationship. That's not the issue here. It's the disposing 
or loosing of someone who just doesn't please you? Well, Dr. David Williams writes on, um, on, on culture, and he says that Western society has become increasingly a pleasure-pain culture. And I think marriages can be affected by this. Because, um, you know, if you seek to avoid um, uh, pain and just have pleasure, there's kind of a dichotomy. So there's this pressure to have the fairy tale marriage, or otherwise, it's a failure. Whereas we're called to mutual service in marriage, where couples grow together through the ups and downs, through for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Well, let's move now to the consequences of serving. These two are wider than we would imagine. We read in, Judy read to us in verses 43 to 49 of fearful consequences, fearful descriptions of unquenchable fire where worms never complete the job. It's very unpopular to think about hell. Many people are commenting on hell at the moment um, after the Israel Falau tweet regarding hell. And they're expressing complete disbelief in hell and also they're ridiculing a belief in hell. But the way in which scripture speaks of it is clear. It is a consequence and it is to be avoided. We need to understand there are consequences to the way we live and they need to be taken extremely seriously. If you happen to be a high status person, how do you serve the helpless ones? the ones below you, someone Jesus gave his life for. Whatever we do, we must not cause anyone to stumble. It's better we die. That's pretty heavy. But we also have to take very seriously the things that would cause us to stumble. We too are are prone to not noticing the kinds of things that could lead to permanent destruction. And as Christians, this is dangerous. What might cause you to stumble, or me? Is there a secret sin? Maybe a love of status? Maybe unable to forgive someone? Maybe a commitment to something that's less than God himself? Well, a few years ago, I learned this in a very painful way. I became aware that I'd fallen into a trap. I was beginning to love working for God more than God himself, more than loving God himself. I had to be surgical. Actually, God enabled me to be surgical in removing this stumbling block over which I would fall from grace. Well, Jesus identified wealth as one of the greatest hindrances. And without God, he said it's impossible to give it up. A bit like Frodo, maybe, in The Lord of the Rings. Loves other than God himself will eventually eat away at us. They will reduce us if we won't let them go. 
but there are other consequences. The other end is the, the rewards, the rewards of serving Christ and his kingdom, to choose day after day to serve Jesus. That is eternal life. But it's pretty intangible, isn't it? We have descriptions about hell in this passage, but none of eternal life. Well, C.S. Lewis writes in his essay, The Weight of Glory, that we all sense this. We sense that there is something more. There's something in the human spirit that longs for more. That our best experiences actually cause us to long for. Yet, we are too easily pleased, too easily satisfied with food and experiences like concerts, holidays, things like the new car. But these things are simply to awaken us, to awaken us to that deeper longing for eternal life. Lewis puts it like this, the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Well, the earnest young man longed for eternal life. He longed for that thing that he didn't have. He was looking for it. But tragically, when he was faced with it, he seemed blinded by his possessions. And he rejected it. But are we really any different? It is really hard. The cost of serving Christ and his kingdom is more impossible than we think. Well, the disciples are actually bewildered when Jesus says it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. They say, well, who can be saved? And Jesus says that what humans cannot do, God makes possible. Is it actually possible to leave your family? I know Yvonne did. There's a few people that can. You leave family, home, assets, careers, everything for Christ and his kingdom. It's pretty hard. Well, David Williams writes, as I said, about culture. And he identifies different cultures. He says that Western culture is becoming more pleasure pain. Formerly, Western culture was more innocence guilt. And Eastern culture is more honor shame. But when we look at this, what do we see? We see pleasure and innocence and honor up that end. They're the desirable aspects in a culture. And what do we see down the other end? We see pain, guilt, and shame, the undesirable things that no culture wants, no one in a culture wants. But look what Jesus did. He went to that end. He took the pain, the guilt, and the shame of humanity. We can't save ourselves. It's impossible. Only Jesus can. But it's well nigh impossible to serve him as well. It's really hard. But what we can't do, God makes possible. What if that young man instead had said, 
I can't let go of my possessions. Help me. I wonder how the story would have ended. Well, Susie Carrick shared with me just the other day that she did not want to leave the family home in Preston, her local friends and cafes, the church she loved to come to St. Tom's. It was just too much to give up. But one day they came here and they visited. Some of you will remember. And then Susie beamed back at me and she said, the community of St. Tom's has been wonderful in supporting us through tough times. God had made possible what she couldn't imagine. If Jesus is the servant king, will he not enable us too to serve and in serving discover him? Let's pray. Lord, it's so hard to imagine that serving is so honoring. Lord, we pray that you will enable us in whatever status we find ourselves, whatever task you give us, to see it as a privilege and to do it as if we were doing it to you because we are. Help us to be grateful that you came and served us and serve you all our lives. In Jesus' name.